we are in a series that we've titled Vision Next because we are in a three-year generosity initiative, church-wide generosity initiative that uh, is also called Vision Next. This, This initiative, if successful, will position us to be able to acquire either a a building to renovate or up to 10 acres of land on which to subsequently build in the future so the life point will one day have a permanent home of our own. Um, You may be aware that significant population growth, uh, which will bring commercial and residential construction, is, uh, is projected for Thurston County, especially the city of Lacey over the next couple of decades. So as we've looked around, we've realized that the land and buildings are both already in short supply. We think that they're going to be in even shorter supply, uh, be snatched up by developers uh, for residential and commercial. So uh, there's a bit of a sense of urgency that we have as as leaders and as a church. We're in a race against time. It's a an audacious God-sized vision and calling, and and we really believe that the cost of inaction on our part is unthinkably high, so that the time is now to move forward in this. Um, You know, we as a church community can't dedicate children and young parents to the Lord without looking to the future and and considering our responsibility for it. We, We have great dreams for the years that lie ahead of us in our lifetimes, but we also hope and pray that LifePoint Church will outlive us all. At least that's what I hope, um, that, that LifePoint will always be there for these children, the children back in our Sunday school, in our youth group, um, and, and for their children and their grandchildren. And, and, we, and here, here's what I pray specifically is that, that we will continue to be a place, LifePoint will continue to be a place, even after we're gone, that there'll continue to be a place where new dreams of faithful and courageous and creative obedience to God will be born in the hearts of and minds of future generations. By, by our sacrificial generosity now, we can influence generations to come for the kingdom of God. And I hope that you will look to the future in that way with me. So uh, how can you learn more about Vision Next if you haven't been briefed on it already? You can go to mylpclacy.com, which uh, Evan always refers to as our central hub. There's a uh, Vision Next um, tab there that you can click on, and it'll take you to a a website that'll tell you all about Vision Next and, and all that's involved. And then this week, on Thursday evening... And then on Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, we are offering what we're calling vision events or vision meetings. And uh, there's going to be food. There's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but our, our goal in our process thus far has been to, to meet with various groups, life groups, groups of different sizes. And, and our, our long-term goal here and where we're trying to get is that everybody at LifePoint uh, has uh, a full understanding of what Vision Next is is really all about and how you can participate in that. So uh, if you have not received a, an, an invitation to that, uh, you probably will if you haven't already, unless your uh, contact information is not in our database. And if you think that may be true of you, uh, would you please just take out your connection card right now and write, Give us your at least your email address and write the words vision meeting on that card. 
either leave it in your seat or put it in the box uh, at the back and we will we'll get that. But we want to make sure that you're invited so that you know what's, what's coming, what's going on. Let's stand together and read our scripture text for this morning. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is God's word, and you may be seated. Well, let's begin with a, just a quick review of the story. And if you haven't been here, we, we've, been, we've been looking at the story of the crossing of the Jordan River by the nation of Israel under the leadership of Joshua after the death of Moses. And, and the Israelite people had been delivered from slavery in Egypt over 40 years earlier. And what should have been about a one-week walk turned into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and several laps around Mount Sinai. Finally, now the Israelites have come to the the Jordan River. Moses has died. Joshua has succeeded him as the leader. And um, God says to Joshua, tell the priest to take up the Ark of the Covenant and go before the people. And uh, and so they did that. They, they, this group of Levitical priests, the descendants of Levi, they, they took the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was carried on poles, 
and they were to go before the people into the Jordan River, which at the time that they arrived was swollen and was very, very wide. Geologists studying that riverbed in that valley have concluded that it may at the time of Joshua been up to you know, two and a half miles wide and it's spring. And so the spring rains and the melting snows from Mount Hermon in the north um, are, have just come down that rift valley into the Jordan through the Sea of Galilee. There are no dams at this time. There are no, you know, pumps driving water into fields alongside the Jordan. This is just a rough, large, deep, wide, swift river at flood stage. And God says, tell those Levitical priests to go and get in that river with a box on their shoulders, a heavy box. And then he says to the Israelites, the, the nation, you, when, when you see that ark moving, you fix your eyes on it and you follow it. As soon as it sets out, you be ready to go. And so here's what happened. The, those Levitical priests took up the ark on their shoulders. They walked. They put their toes in the water, and the water was stacked up at a place 20 miles to the north called Adam so that the riverbed dried up, and all that water from that point at Adam flowed down to the Dead Sea. Where we pick up the story today is that this crossing, which probably took up to a couple of days, uh, some estimate that the nation of Israel was as large as 2.5 million people at the time. Um, and, and they all had their wagons and their baggage and their children and uh, there weren't, you know, um, pack up the babies and grab the old ladies, but there, there, there weren't any old ladies because that previous generation had all died in the wilderness because of their dis- disobedience to God. But, but the picture a cloud of dust and wagons and livestock and warriors and moms and dads and children crossing over as the priest stood there in the river. So the, the crossing of the Jordan River now is nearly complete where we pick it up today. The entire Israelite nation had now crossed over as the, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm there in the middle of the riverbed. And only one thing, maybe two things, remained to be accomplished. Uh, in response to the command of the Lord, Joshua called 12 men from the people of Israel, from each tribe a man. Now don't confuse these with the priests. These are just 12 guys, 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, first Israelite rock band, I would say. He, he, he appointed them to take up 12 stones, thank you, 12 stones from the spot where the priest had been standing in the middle of the Jordan River uh, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord on their shoulders as the people passed over that spot in the midst of the river had become holy ground. And the man chosen from each of the 12 tribes went into the river, picked up a stone, brought it with him to the far side of the river and laid it down in the place where they were to camp that night. And we're not told on what basis these men were selected. My guess is that each of them was probably the biggest, strongest, gnarliest dude from each tribe. Um, Might have been the Israeli Olympic powerlifting team. Uh, The guys from each tribe who, who could heft the largest rock possible. That's the way I picture this story. Please don't go home and say that Pastor Jim taught about, you know, 12 men passing stones. That's, that's not... That's not the picture. 
That's not the image that you want to go home with. Notice that there are actually 24 stones in this story, not just 12. The stones that had been taken out of the Jordan, it says that Joshua took those stones and set them up at a place called Gilgal. Gilgal sounds very much like the Hebrew, contemporary Hebrew word for circle. And if you visit Gilgal or if you've seen pictures, um, there are all of these very interesting stone circles at this place called Gilgal. It has a storied history uh, in Israel. So Joshua set up those stones at Gilgal. It's very close to Jericho. Uh, As we read, they were to serve as a sign and a memorial for generations to come. Joshua took 12 other stones as well, though, it says, and he set them up in the midst of the river. So he lifted them out of the riverbed and somehow set them up at the very spot where the priest had stood bearing the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, one of the questions that arises as we think about this story is how large were those stones, really? Um, Because I I don't think they were basketball size. Uh, Here's what I think. I I think that the, the answer clearly has to be that they were large enough and arranged, stood up in in such a way as to cause children in future generations to see them and have a question form in their minds. How did those stones get there? What an interesting arrangement. Those are huge stones. So they would ask, Daddy, Mommy, uh, will you tell us about those stones? Why are they here? What do they mean? And in verses 6 and 7 and 21 through 24, we we hear the priority that relates to these stones. You shall let your children know. Treated twice in this chapter. Very interesting. At verses 6 and 7, it says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verses 21 to 24, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Will you give attention, please, to to two phrases, one in verse 6 and the other in verse 24. Verse 6, then you shall tell them. Bear with me for just a moment. Then you shall tell them. 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 There's a responsibility being expressed here. He's speaking to the men of Israel, the dads, the granddads, the rabbis. Verse 24, then you shall let your children know. One of the great questions of human history is is how the Hebrew nation 
has survived over thousands of years of conquest, of uh, genocide, holocaust, persecution? And the answer is surely this, that the Jews have consistently placed their children and their children's faith at the center of the priorities of their community and have been faithful to tell the story of God's calling, of God's faithfulness, of God's deliverance, and to tell it in such a way that it's not just those guys back then, but the pronoun is always we. We were slaves in Egypt. We. This is our story. This is your story. They did what both Moses and Joshua told them to do. The words of Psalm 78, 1 through 8, capture this priority among the Israelites. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful, to God. In the past year or so, uh, Americans have engaged a somewhat vigorous national debate with regard to the place and the purpose of historical monuments. Any of you tune into that? Simply put, the debate has been centered on which people and which events in the history of our nation deserve to be memorialized. Which parts of our past will we choose to remember in highly visible ways? And opinions have been polarized. You notice that? Why is that? It's because monuments matter to the collective memory and therefore the identity for good or for ill of a nation. They, they tell us where we came from. They tell us what happened in our past. They, they tell us how we got to where we are today. And from there, they, ins- they assist to inform who we are today. The stories that, that we pass down from generation to generation give shape to each successive generation's sense of identity, their understanding of who they are. And, and, and they are, in turn, formative to the character and their understanding of how they should live their lives. I've been intrigued by the uh, popularity of this thing called Ancestry.com. You guys have seen the commercials. They're just endless commercials. But, but I love the, the one guy, you know, who is he and his family would put on lederhosen and dance at these festivals. And he discovers they're not German at all. They're, they're Scots. And so they got rid of the lederhosen and got kilts, learned to do highland dancing, I guess, instead. Or the African woman who finds out where her, most of her ancestors came from and she puts on the garb and 
puts on the headdress and, and weeps because she is understanding something about her past that informs her future. Powerful stuff. We all want to understand who we are, where we came from. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a Lutheran pastor, a pacifist, who was executed by the Germans days before the close of World War II uh, for resisting the Nazi regime and on suspicion of having conspired to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pacifist, struggled for years about how he should act and what ought to be his responsibility during this terrible thing that was happening in the world. And he finally concluded that, that to not attempt to bring the thing to an end was ultimately irresponsible. As a child, Bonhoeffer had been inspired by a book entitled Heroes of Every Day. And, and this book told stories, story after story, of children, courageous young people who, with selflessness and clear thinking, often saved the lives of others, sometimes at the cost of their own. Shortly before his execution, uh, Bonhoeffer was reportedly reading Plutarch's Lives, a book that explores the courageous character of individuals in ancient times. Commenting on this, Daniel Taylor, a professor at Bethel University in Minnesota, wrote these words, Can we doubt that Bonhoeffer's reading shaped his acting, including his decision to risk his own life to save others. Ethics are formed more by the stories with which we surround ourselves than by the rules that are drilled into us. Tell us what stories you value, and we have a good start on knowing who you are and how you will act in the world. See, the the challenge that this presents to us as parents and grandparents today has to do with the passing of the baton of faith from one generation to the next. And I really believe that the greatest challenge faced by every Christian parent, the, the greatest test of every local church, if you will, every community of believers in Jesus Christ is the successful passing of that baton of faith in Christ to the next generation. There's just nothing else that compares to it in importance. As a pastor, I'm haunted to this day by the title of a book I read in graduate school many years ago. And just the title of the book alone, the title was, Will Our Children Have Faith? Will Our Children Have Faith? And I've never stopped thinking about that question. It's a, it's a question on which each of us must reflect. Will we have communicated what is most essential, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of God's power and faithfulness in creation and then throughout history, in ways that they will have heard, in ways that they will have understood, in ways that they will have embraced for themselves, so that the faith of their adulthood is no longer our faith or or the grandparents' faith or just the faith of the the community of believers that they grew up in, but it's uniquely their own. They've embraced it for themselves. Will we have modeled for them a faith that matters, a faith that's attractive, a faith that that they will claim as their own? Will we have surrounded them with, with love and a community that cares about them personally? and instills in them a compelling vision to live for Christ throughout all the years of their lives? 
Well, we have helped them understand why it is that the gospel meets the deepest need of the human heart in every generation. It's our responsibility to grapple with those questions. The words of Joshua that day need to resonate in our hearts and in our minds and give shape to our priorities as parents, as families, as a church today. You shall tell them, it says. You shall tell them. You shall let your children know. And let me just be pushy here because I'm going to get pushier. Dads, the you is you. And here's what we do. We, we relinquish it to mom, don't we? You look, in our, you look in our children's Sunday school classes and who's back there teaching? Moms. Why? Because dads won't do it. Cowards, you shall tell them. You shall let your children know. Some of you may remember that the 2008 Beijing Olympics with the United States men's and women's 4 by 100 meter relay teams who each dropped batons. And to a relay runner, there was a time I didn't look like this. I was a relay runner. To relay runners, when, when you hear the ping of the baton on the track, it's a dreadful moment. And their performance, that disastrous performance, prompted the chief executive of USA Track and Field to, to command a complete review of the entire relay program. You see, on the surface, batons don't seem that, that difficult. They're, they're just a metal cylinder, 12 inches long smooth. They're not pretty. They're just, they're called the stick. But races are often won or lost at the moment of the handoff. When the handoff is fumbled, the race is lost. Someone once said that the Christian faith is always just one generation away from extinction. And I tend to agree with that. I personally know a few other times in history when the answer to that question of whether the next generation will have personal faith in Christ has been more in doubt. Some of you may have heard from parents who, who think of themselves as quite enlightened when they say something like, well, I don't want to prejudice my children. And so I'm going to allow them to make their own decisions about religious faith. And when I hear parents say that, what I want to say is, you're not enlightened, you're lazy. And, and you're dumb as a rock. <laughs> and you're in desperate need of enlightenment yourself. Leaving your children on their own to arrive at their own convictions is a little like putting children in a chemistry lab full of volatile substances and saying, kids, just create your own compounds. Have fun. It's an absolutely irresponsible and potentially deadly posture in the bewildering, relativistic, post-Christian, anti-Christian, amoral environment in which our children are growing up. 
You are responsible, Christian parents, Christian dads especially, to lead your children to faith in Jesus Christ. There is, listen, there is no other Savior. Amen? There is no other Savior. And you are responsible, church, to assist Christian parents and, and, to assume responsibility of communicating the gospel to children whose parents never will. And let me just say this. I believe that it is a tragedy, it is a betrayal when our ministries to children here at LifePoint, our ministries to youth, are understaffed. That ought not to be so. It should never be so. The stakes are way too high. A major research project was done called the National Study of Youth and Religion. And it researched answers to this question. What factors help Christian youth maintain their faith into adulthood? One of the shorthand answers that I've given when people have asked me, what, is, what does success look like here at LifePoint in terms of our children's ministries and our youth ministries. And I, here's my shorthand answer. My shorthand answer is that when we will know that we've been successful when our young people, having graduated from high school, having moved uh, out of town, out of mom and dad's house, on their own for the very first time, maybe in another town, off to college or a university, one of their first priorities is to find a church to be a part of because they understand now that their faith is their own and that they need to be a part and that faith has everything to do with being part of a community of believers. But here's, uh, here's what the study did. They identified three factors in this issue of maintaining faith into adulthood. First, that the young parents, a young person's parents practiced their faith in the home and in daily life not just in public settings or church settings. Any of you take in Billy Graham's funeral this week? I loved what Franklin Graham said about his dad. It rang in my ears. He said, there were not two Billy Grahams. Now, the Billy Graham that you saw on television, the Billy Graham you saw on the platform behind the pulpit, was the same Billy Graham when he came home. There weren't two Billy Grahams. Our, our kids need to see in us as parents uh, not a perfect life, not a perfect faith. They need to see us in a, a real relationship with God, dealing with it in our own lives, struggling with the questions of discipleship, the priorities of discipleship, the challenges of discipleship, the sacrifices of discipleship. They need to be able to view us dealing with our own relationship with God. Secondly, the young person had at least one significant adult mentor or friend other than parents who practiced the faith seriously. So now we're talking about a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker or, or a life group leader or we're talking about just somebody that loves them that they know in their church who's modeling the, the, the life of faith in a way that they can see. Third, the young person had at least one significant personal spiritual experience before the age of 17. See, and that's where the, 
the stupidity of allowing our kids to just kind of make their own decisions and wander into adulthood uninformed appears so irresponsible. We're not talking about just a religious education. We're talking about a personal encounter with God before the age of 17. So how important is it that, that we teach our children, that we love our children, that we disciple our children from, from birth right on through adolescence and the teen years into adulthood? In other words, teens are most likely to retain their Christian faith into adulthood if they've had a meaningful and healthy relationship with parents who are following Christ, with a faithful Christian mentor outside the family, and meaningful personal encounters with God himself. Check this out. What the study revealed really is is that the central issues cluster around relationships, not programs. In other words, unless there are one or more specific adults in a young person's life who demonstrate by personal example in the context of a meaningful long-term relationship what it means to live out a personal faith in Christ in their daily lives, no amount of clever programming will suffice. So you could have the biggest, largest, most dynamic youth ministry in town, the biggest, largest, funnest children's ministry in town, but unless you're, you're committing yourself to those relational issues, it's not going to get the job done. In order for young people to persist in faith into their adulthood, they need a personal observation of genuine, genuine faith in the lives of adults, preferably beginning with their parents and a personal experience of the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ for themselves. Well, the application of this, I think, has to do with what I've been calling lately an extended legacy. And I want to make just one final set of observations this morning, and I'll be done. The first comes from Pastor Steve, our pastor of children and young adults. As we were talking about this passage, He made the observation, simple observation, that the memorial was erected on the far shore, on the western banks of the river, not on the near shore, the eastern banks. The memorial happens over there, not here. On the other side of the miracle, on the other side of the encounter with God. Before the power of God could be memorialized, the power of God had to be revealed And before the power of God could be revealed, the people of God had to obey the command of God and follow the leadership of God. So let me ask you, teens, let me ask you adults, the pushy, direct, personal, confrontational questions I alluded to earlier. Do you or will you have any stories of the revealed power of God in your own life, in your personal experience to tell your children and grandchildren? Or will all the stories you have to tell them be about other people and and the faith of other Christians? What steps of faith and obedience are you willing to take in order to have a personal story to tell? Are you... What steps are you willing to take? Are are you willing to put your foot in the river? 
Are you willing to to trust that where God leads you, he's going to cover you? Are you willing to cross the river while the priests are standing with the ark? Are you willing to, to take steps of belief in God that what he commanded and what he calls you to do is real and he really wants you to do it, not somebody else? I just got one more in case you're reeling. Yeah. What investments are you willing to make in, in the lives of our children such that in time, and I say our children, our children, the, these children, what investments are you willing to make in the lives of our children such that in time they in turn will have a story of God's faithfulness to tell to their children and their grandchildren? We've got to wrestle with this. And we've got to get serious about it. The stakes are far too high. So my great hope is that LifePoint Church will have an extended legacy, that it will outlive us all. Someone once said that change is the only constant, and LifePoint as a church will keep on changing in the years to come. It's going to change this year. Someday it will have different pastors. And some days it'll be sitting in a community that has changed and has different sets of needs and different priorities. But the one thing I pray that will never change is that when we are gone, when this generation has passed, LifePoint will never cease to be a church that honors the inspiration and authority of the Word of God, faithfully proclaims the eternal life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community and beyond. And my great prayer at this moment is that our faith-motivated actions, the actions of LifePoint in this generation, our sacrificial generosity now will ignite a movement that will impact generations to come, generations yet unborn for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. May I add this, that this is high among the reasons that the leadership of LifePoint Church, and hopefully we're all gathering, we're coming together around this dream, we dream of establishing a campus where we can continue to develop a ministry to children in our congregation and to other children and youth in our community that leads them in a growing relationship with Christ and and prepares them to pass on the baton of faith to the next generations. Psalm 45, 17 captures this well. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. And may that be our goal May that be our prayer. May that be our purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have called us together. You've called us to be a church. You've called us to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm passionate this morning because I I look to the generations that, that are growing up today and I wonder, I just wonder, will they have faith? But Lord, as it is up to us, as it is within our power, as it is within our ability to affect, 
Lord, will you challenge us? Will you call us? Will you empower us to pass the baton of faith firmly and and effectively and successfully to the generations that will carry it on when we've uh, finished our race? Lord, help us to be found faithful in this generation, to the children that we dedicated this morning, and to all the others that uh, run around the halls of this church and sit in our classrooms. Oh God, let us not fail. Let us be found faithful. And Lord, would you sustain them in all the years to come in their lives, that they would live for Christ, regardless of the cost and in spite of the circumstances. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.